Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, May 21st, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. All right, let's talk about uh, what happened in New York yesterday all over town. A friend of mine was uh, on First Avenue, uh, which, uh, or Second Avenue, and saw a caravan driving down the street uh, with people shouting, effing Jews, F the Jews. Uh, in Times Square, there was a rally in support of Israel, pro Palestinian types came and started attacking the pro-Israel demonstrators, stealing flags, chasing other kids down on 43rd Street, uh, uh, East 43rd, just off Fifth Avenue. Um, uh, There is the footage of uh, diners sitting there, uh, people coming up and spitting on them. Uh, we don't really know what triggered the confrontation since it's not a kosher steakhouse uh, that they were at, um, but uh, but uh, spitting on them, uh, swinging at them, uh, and then um, the most startling scene is a video on 47th Street, which is the Diamond District. Uh, again, a kind of open caravan, like a pickup truck with people in the back, faces covered driving down the street very slowly, shouting Palestine slogans with uh, people on the street, Jews who work on the street, yelling back. And then all of a sudden, uh, a small incendiary device goes off, like just, just a flash bomb, not 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 anything, you know, uh, in front of a an office building on 47th that houses a lot of Jewish diamond and jewelry businesses. Uh, this was all in the space of six hours following the attack on diners uh, on La Cienega in Los Angeles, uh, events in Toronto, events in London. Uh, last night, a Jewish driver was beaten up um, uh, in Golders Green in North London, the main Jewish neighborhood. Apparently, also someone tried to break into a butcher shop. There's a lot of there's a lot of horrible, horrible stuff going on. And uh, Abe, what did you notice about the New York Times? Nothing. There was absolutely nothing about these New York attacks in the paper. Not in the not on the front page. Not in the uh, metro section. Uh, uh, John, you say that they made mention of the, the attacks in New York in a, in a piece I about. Am- I'm wrong. There is no mention of the attack. There's a piece by Ruth Graham about what happened in Los Angeles, about the restaurant attack in Los Angeles, uh, uh, the sushi restaurant on La Cienega, but uh, New York is not mentioned. The city, city, by the way, two of these incidents happened within five minutes of the New York Times' headquarter building. And, and, And I mean, not to argue with your characterization, but that wasn't a small incendiary device. Well, that was a when big I say last, it, no, it looked like a quarter stick of dynamite. No, when I say when I say it was a, it was a, it's not. It wasn't like if you had been standing right next to it, like it didn't ignite anything. That's that's what I mean. They, I don't. We, we don't really don't know what it was, uh, and the bomb squad is on it, and and all of that. Can I tell you what strikes me about the images that I've seen, uh, particularly of the driving caravans? This is not an American image. These, this is a th- this image of having a bunch of people with, um, you know, masks on and banners flying from a truck, a pickup truck, as they slowly drive down the street. This is an image out of out of the third world. This is an image of sort of gang, you know, paramilitary stuff, where people are driving around trying to frighten other people simply by showing the flag. Um, it is very, very disturbing to see those images, you know, traveling down, someone traveling down, again, like Second Avenue uh, in New York City, 
uh, looking like they're driving through Tegucigalpa. Well, and, and the fact that that image is not being shared all over mainstream media platforms. How many of us looked at images of guys in polo shirts with tiki torches in Charlottesville for weeks and weeks, the coverage of what was a, a very noxious right wing rally in Charlottesville that led to the tragic death of a young woman that was covered because it was Trump supporter types who were on the side that the media wanted to, to bash. Now we have a group for which I think a lot of our mainstream media is highly sympathetic. So it's as if it's not happening in the same way that, you know, we were told that when Trump called COVID Wuhan flu, that led to violence against Asian Americans. And yet they won't report on who's actually beating up Asian Americans in most cities. So it's, it is, I, I, we overuse Orwellian. I always say this, but there's a weird sort of attempt not to cover what's right in front of our eyes. And particularly if you live in a city and you see this happening, why isn't it in the newspaper of record? Why isn't it on every cable news network being dissected by every pundit? Um, well, you'd have to the, apply the same standards, right? The standards that were applied in Charlottesville was that noxious political rhetoric had whipped up this, these sentiments, which are always sort of lingering just up beneath the surface of American politics. And we have to, you know, rein in political rhetoric. And if we were to apply that standard, it would lead us directly to the squad. Regarding the the third world aspect um, of those caravans, so um, Europe beat us to this. Uh, in European capitals, we saw we saw similar images. Um, we've seen similar images to this both this time around and before. Um, and I have to say, every time I saw, I would see that in a, for a footage, that type of footage from a European city. I think, well, yeah, that's that's Europe. Unfortunately, that's 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 not going to happen here. Um, Europe has screwed up uh, in various ways um, by their inability to to assimilate and um, there's fear of multiculturalism. Uh, no, well, not fear of. I mean, fear yeah. of, of of not of being insufficiently multicultural and all the rest of it. Um, and I was wrong. It is simply here. It's literally balkanization. Right. So right. Let, let, but let's discuss how this happens, right? So in previous iterations of the Arab-Israeli conflict or, you know, the Palestinians or whatever, um, the action was at a high level. That is to say, we were people were always afraid that the Arab street would erupt, right? That was the big thing, Arab street. You know, oh, my God, we have to do something or the Arab street will erupt. The Muslim Brotherhood will take over or Iran will take over and the entire world will go up in a nuclear conflagration. And so the action was always at the senior level. It was what's going on in the Security Council, what's going on between the foreign ministers, how, what is the president going to do, what is the Secretary of State doing? How how are leading figures in the world going to react? How is what how are oil prices like global issues? Right. So as um, as the centrality of the Israeli Palestinian conflict, uh, as that has moved from the center to the periphery over the last ten years, now what we have is a world in which there is no top level action to speak of all that much. I mean, certainly not in comparison with 2014, 2006, the Intifada, however you want to, whatever kind of conflicts go on, uh, there is almost no international, wild, crazy international diplomacy. And if you think about it, basically the ceasefire that was agreed to yesterday, so Egypt talked to Hamas, you know, basically it's that rule, right? Hamas just stopped firing rockets and the, there'll be a ceasefire. Not a lot of action, no shuttle diplomacy. John Kerry's not flying between, you know, isn't going between Gaza and Tel Aviv, all that crap, right? So so that's all over with. And so what you start getting in the wake of, you know, Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, all that is street theater. There's never, there, there's been some street theater on college campuses, but even that stuff has mostly been at the kind of like administrative level, are you going to defund Jewish groups? Is there, are you going to have boycott, divestment, and sanctions? These are policy issues. Here we have direct physical confrontations on the streets between people who support one side or support the other. Our friend, my friend Abigail Schreier, uh, who actually lives in Los Angeles, tweets, there's a, there's a, the video uh, right in front of the TKTS booth in Times Square of a kid who has his uh, 
his Israeli flag was grabbed from him by a Palestinian kid. He chases the guy down uh, in order to find out what what on earth is you know to get it back. And he and he finds himself in the middle of a crowd, uh, a Palestinian crowd, and gets punched in the head. He ended up in the hospital with a concussion. He's in the hospital. He is, has a concussion, and his dad, the kid's name is uh, Zachary Moskowitz, and his dad says, it's just interesting to me how few police were there, which I don't understand. Usually when they have these demonstrations, there are a lot of police. I just don't understand. If you watch the video, you see police. There are police there, six or seven. They restrain a couple of people. But what is going on here is the deliberate decision of police departments not to engage, not to you know create the conditions under which they make they they establish the zones uh, so that people do not interact and start you know punching each other. But they. And- they- yeah, oh, I was going to say to your, your street theater point is important because I think we all, especially those of us who live in cities, saw a dress rehearsal of types uh, last summer with the Black Lives Matter folks. And I know one thing that I uh, just as Abe, I agree that the observation that, wow, something we've seen in Europe has come here. I remember watching uh, reports largely from kind of non-mainstream media types who would follow around the rallies that would sometimes uh, devolve into more uh, violent behavior. They would go to people's houses here. It's certainly a lot of times Trump administration officials here in D.C., but even in the suburbs, they went to Josh Hawley's house when his wife and newborn child were there, but Josh Hawley wasn't. And they camp out on the lawn. They did this um, as well in Louisville for officials. They'll go to someone's private home and harass them at home. And this is actually a new, this is a kind of tactic that um, the Washingtonian magazine has just written a big feature about, kind of a flattering feature about how, wow, look at this new way that they're approaching their protesting. Look, it's really getting people's attention. It's also, I think, garnering a lot more fear and loathing of the people who do this. I mean, they walk up and down the streets banging pots and pans in the middle of the night to make the rich feel uncomfortable. I mean, there are all these ways that a lot of kind of young professional protesters, as, as we found uh, in cities like D.C. and New York uh, last summer, there are lots of idle people with a lot of time on their hands to spend camp down on someone's private lawn screaming through a bullhorn at them. Um, so that is also kind of new. The it's, it, it's in keeping with the confronting strangers who are sitting on the street trying to have a meal and screaming in their faces and demanding that they raise their fists in solidarity. This is not how protests used to happen in this country, um, except on the very fringe. And it is now becoming progressive mainstream protest technique. Right. And that is also very much like not an American tradition. Protest is an American tradition. Large-scale demonstrations are an American tradition. Wandering down a street, attempting to cause conflict by driving in a truck, uh, some and apparently somebody having a bomb, uh, in the truck, uh, that's that's new. Here's one way in which it's not new. In 1968, an editor of the Jewish Press, a Brooklyn Jewish newspaper, uh, noted a, an alarming increase in the number of attacks on Jews in neighborhoods, Jewish neighborhoods in Brooklyn, uh, that had started to, um, you know, sort of like uh, get 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 a wash in in the crime wave of of the 1960s but that some of these attacks seem to be you know what what would not then have been called hate crimes but are now would be considered hate crimes people getting beaten up who had yarmulkes or kippahs on uh anti-semitic stuff being said while they were beaten or robbed or whatever and this editor at the jewish press his name was mayor kahana and he Started a group called the Jewish Defense League, which was a self, which was a radical self-defense organization, and it horrified and disgusted the Jewish establishment, who considered them vigilante terrorists. Um, uh, and Kahana then went on to become the most controversial politician in Israel's history because he 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 developed a almost explicitly racist set of ideas about whether or not Jews and Arabs could live together. Very controversial figure, um, you know. And then was assa- basically was assassinated by a, a terrorist group in a ballroom in New York City in 1990 1991. Uh, Kahana. The Jewish Defense League uh, is a 
was a self-defense organization at a time when, you know, America sort of had, didn't have those things and wasn't used to them. And Jews certainly didn't want to seem like they were advocating violence uh, and, you know, and, and violent responses to, to violence. Um, another week of this, and there's going to be a new Jewish defense league. Uh, there are already Jewish patrols in, 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 in Haredi neighborhoods and things like that. But those are mostly like, you know, like, like neighborhood street patrols, not, not essentially a counter gang that goes around and looks to nail somebody. And with that, I'm sure a transition that our, um, our advertiser will really like. With that, it's time to talk about trust and will. Many of you are just starting out buying a home, having babies, building wealth. Be sure to add securing your family's future to your to-do list by establishing a will or trust at trustandwill.com. At trustandwill.com, setting up an estate plan is simple, convenient, and secure. For as little as $39, you can nominate guardians for your children, determine who gets your stuff, and plan for future medical care, all from the comfort of your home. Hiring a traditional estate attorney can cost thousands, and using a one-size-fits-all template is not nearly specialized enough. Trust and will documents are designed by estate planning experts and customized for the state you live in. And with live customer support seven days a week, Trustandwill.com's team is available to answer any questions you have while setting up your plan. Trust and Will is the most trusted name in online estate planning, the category leader on Trustpilot, and it's helped thousands and hundreds of thousands of people protect their families, assets, and legacy. Gain peace of mind at trustandwill.com slash commentary and get 10% off plus free shipping of your customized legal documents. Don't wait. Go right now. This is really important. Get 10% off plus free shipping at trustandwill.com slash commentary. Trustandwill.com slash commentary i have a post up on the on the on the website i put up last night um uh because uh, all of this is happening the third uh ranking second it, it depends on whether you think the senate majority leader is more powerful or less powerful than the speaker of the house second or third most important democratic official in the united states elected official is charles schumer senior senator of new york and the senate majority leader uh Violent anti-Semitic attacks are taking place all over the country. Yesterday, violent anti-Semitic attacks took over New York City's uh, streets. Uh, Chuck Schumer uh, has said nothing. This is his state. This is his state. He he uh, he endorsed a ceasefire uh, proposal, uh, bipartisan ceasefire proposal from Senate colleagues on Monday, and that's all he has said. And here's why I think he is disgusting, a weasel, a worm in human form. Chuck Schumer, uh, in his um, earlier iterations, uh, was a congressman, was a congressman from the most Jewish district in the United States, represented uh, before him by Emanuel Seller for 50 years, and then by Stephen Solars, on whose staff he worked. Uh, Then he became a congressman, and then he became a senator. And Schumer wanders around, went around to Jewish groups all the time saying that he his secret truest mission was the defense uh, of the Jewish people. That was his true purpose as a, as a political figure. He wanted to defend the Jewish people. He sought power in order to deploy that power to defend the Jewish people. After all, his name is Shumer, which is Shomer in Hebrew. That is guardian. And of course, uh, the, the, the Torah and the mission has set up uh, four categories of guardian. It's an official kind of position in the Jewish community. Some of it's about law. Some of it's about uh, uh, the maintenance of the temple, all of that. But he is a guardian at the gates of Jerusalem. That's who he is. That's what he does. Give him money. Jews, give me money. I am the guardian at the gates of Jerusalem. Chuck Schumer has said nothing. Chuck Schumer has said nothing. Guess why? Because he is up for re-election in 2022, and he is scared shitless of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, of course, has been issuing statement after statement and tweet after tweet, slimily uh, uh, endorsing the Hamas view of the conflict with Israel without actually doing so. And he is sitting there cowering in his crib like an oleaginous third-rate hack. And that's the guardian at the gates of Jerusalem that he has posed himself as. Yeah, I don't I, I don't know how I, we see his behavior. And, and actually, a lot of the senior Democratic leadership's behavior is anything but uh, uh, an example 
of how fearful they are of the squad's power. The squad, by the way, which has been growing. It's not just four ladies who appear on Rolling Stone covers anymore. It's it's with each election cycle, we get more avowed squad types who are you know either either justice Democrat backed progressives or um, you know other progressive wings of the Democratic Party. Almost all of them share the same view towards Israel, and almost all of them, particularly AOC, but also obviously Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar, absolutely using social media during the past week and a half to spread lies. They're just lying. They put outright lies on social media. These are elected members of Congress. We should correctly, and we have been uh, calling out that behavior on the right ever since Trump was elected. It should be called out now, and it should be called out by leadership. Um, and it's not. It's not because they, I think you're right, John. I think particularly people like Schumer fear being outflanked on the left. And I guess they should, although it's not clear to me that that, that voters agree with a lot of what they're saying, but they're getting a ton of attention. They're getting a ton of traffic for this. And it does demand a response. And there's lies that lead to violence. Yes. And they're being promoted on social media, which we were told not all that long ago is completely unacceptable, a violation of terms of service. And uh, the squad of Rashida Tlaib in particular has been appearing at events and um, spewing these lies uh, in places where the types of people who we saw in these slow moving caravans um, have also been appearing, maybe not simultaneously, um, uh, saying um, the kind of hateful um, anti-Semitic things that we, we now see happening on the streets. You know, it's uh, the classic Jews are the canary in the coal mine. Uh, not that not that this kind of behavior started uh, against Jews, because you could argue that this kind of street theater, semi all of that really, you know, we saw it in Portland for six months, uh, some in Seattle, all of that, like, you know, and it's it, so it, it didn't really start with this. But um, if we are if we are seeing uh, the uh, ideological breakup of the United States uh, uh, into camps that are, are so uh, brusquely defined that they actually do explicitly feel that it is okay to wreak violence on, on others, um, as we are told, you know, white supremacists want to do. Um, you know, uh, of course, the Jews uh, are, are early uh, participants in that in that game, because that's what, that's what Jews, Jews are the, are the knife's edge of civilization. When, when countries, when parties, when all of that turn on, that is, that is the sign that things are going in a very dangerous direction, not only for Jews, but for civilization itself. Um, and the reason to be horrified by Chuck Schumer is, uh, Christine, you may be right that uh, there's no, there's very, there isn't that much evidence that this kind of behavior is anything that democratic voters ne necessarily want or endorse or support. Uh, but he seems to think it is. And so there we get back to our favorite Plato's cave analogy. It's not a question of whether the, the demons that uh, the demons outside are real. It's whether you imagine them to be real. And if you imagine them to be real, then they're, then they're real to you and you act accordingly. Uh, you act according to the, to the, to the fear, the fantastical fear rather than the reality that is in front of you. Well, and the mainstream media is certainly giving, would give a Schumer the impression that he better tread carefully as well. It's not, even if he's not worried about voters, the image that could be created of him openly defying the squad's, you know, uh, claims isn't great. And we know which side of this most of the mainstream media outlets are on, judging by the language they use and how they've uh, been describing this conflict of the last few weeks. See, I'm not so sure about that, which is why, which makes this even more horrifying in a way. Um, saying I will not tolerate, you know, hate anti-Semitic hate crimes in New York City, uh, the uh, the city with the largest uh, Jewish population in the world, or the second—I don't know wh where Tel Aviv is now in relation to in relation to New York—but you know, for 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 many, many, many decades, New York was the most uh, populous Jewish population center in the world. Um, uh, saying I won't tolerate this; these are my constituents, and how dare you, and all of that. And I stand with my people. Whatever. I think that's kind of a gimme. That's why this makes this so horrible. 
That's why this makes it even more horrible. Because if it's a gimme, the question you have to ask yourself is why isn't he taking the gimme? And the reason he's not taking the gimme is that it doesn't matter that it would be popular. He's skilled, he's still scared shitless, like a whinging little baby, by the fear that he has of AOC. Um, and right. So the, the most charitable interpretation of that logic is that I have to win my primary. I have to keep my, my seat because if I were to lose a whole host of horrors would follow me. So I have to make all these compromises in the pursuit of that objective, which is ultimately a greater good. But in the pursuit of those compromises, you make everything worse. You're, you're creating the conditions that will radicalize this, the, the party that you lead and then you'll end up leading a radicalized party at the end of the day, even if you're lucky enough to make it through this. So the compromises just aren't worth it. That's kind of the, the story of the House Democrats up to this point. It's the story of every politician. Yeah. Right. But, but every politician who considers themselves to be indispensable. Well, Look, but on uh, the issue of anti-Semitism, though, with the Democrats, that is definitely the entire narrative. Remember, they've had uh, several opportunities in the past to call this what it is, which is horrible anti-Semitism. And every single time they had the opportunity, they caved or they made it about, oh, all racism is bad. Everything is bad. Right. Except here's what's here's what's interesting about that. So you could make an argument, not a defensible argument, morally defensible, but practical or however you want to slice it, that. Uh, doing the statement against Ilhan Omar uh, and Rashida Tlaib in 2019, uh, which is the thing that you're mostly talking about for uh, uh, saying, you know, it's all about the Benjamins and all of that. You could say, okay, look, we're locked in a mortal twilight struggle with Donald Trump and we need to husband all our resources because he's going to destroy America. And this is being used by Trump's people and apologists to distract from his evil. And so we can't allow ourselves to be divided in this way. Uh, as Noah would say, the stakes are too high, right? Because what, fo- what will follow our defeat and being separated and all of that um, is, you know, the twilight of our country and all of that. Uh, this is now May 2021. Democrats control the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Uh, uh, they can lie to themselves that they're locked in a twilight struggle with Republicans who want to destroy democracy all they want. Uh, they are the ones for the moment in the catbird seat. That should give them running room. That should give them running room to do what they have to do. Schumer is afraid of being primaried next year. And so he is shamefully and disgustingly having spent decades lifting himself on his own shoulders as a holy man protecting his people, he is hiding in the closet, you know, as the brown shirts, you know, start breaking the windows on his block. And it's not even that he's like a, an ordinary shopkeeper. He's like, you know, he's like the chancellor of Germany and he is doing nothing out of slimy, impotent fear. Uh, it's, 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 appalling, you know, beyond belief. Look, Nancy Pelosi made a better statement about the anti-Semitic attacks yet than, than Schumer has. Why? Because she's not going to be primaried by AOC. That's why. Or fearing primarying by AOC. Anyway. Uh, okay, so there is a ceasefire. Uh, it's now, as we uh, as we tape this, it is now uh, about 12 hours old, maybe a little... Uh, no, wait, hold on. I can't. I, anyway, it's something like 12 hours, and so far it's holding. Um, and so if it holds, are we just forgetting all about this by Monday? What do you think? I don't mean the anti-Semitic attack stuff. I mean, is suddenly the flare-up of the evil of Israel and Gaza is like, once there are no rockets... Does everybody just sort of like, it, does the amnesia hit again? Well, there'll, there'll, there'll be a wave of stories about the destruction in Gaza, right? I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll see that, we, you know, that because th- there will continue to be um, evidence of that. So you can go in with yeah. cameras and you can interview yeah. people. Um, um, yeah. But aside from that, I'm not sure, you know. Until there, by the way, the coverage, I mean, the coverage right now is focused on um, the Temple Mount, where there are ongoing riots. 
worshippers that are described as that that apparently went to El Aqsa armed with uh, with rocks and Molotov cocktails, uh, who are continuing to execute the kind of violence that was whipped up by the Pal- Palestinian Authority prior to um, Hamas's intervention in that conflict, or using it as a as a um, you know a cause to to engage in that in that rocket volley. So the you know the so supposedly the proximate causes of this war are ongoing. I mean, well, well, just going to say the court case in Israel still has yet to be adjudicated. So whenever that happens, um, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, something occurred to me about all this street theater. Okay. And, 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 and this, uh, the critical race theory ization of the Israel Palestinian conflict that I, we keep talking about in the absurdity of claiming that uh, a country that is, um, made up uh, more than 50% of people whose origins are, are in Africa and North Africa, Sephardic Jews are somehow, you know, whites and the Palestinians are brown. Um, they're brown. Tunisian Jews are brown. Obviously, Ethiopian Jews are very black. Um, Ye- Yemeni Jews are brown. Uh, 850,000 of them came to Israel in 1950. I mean, let's, you know, let's just, let's let's talk, let's talk Turkey here. But anyway... Uh, so this is all going on. It's horrible. Gaza, life, monstrous, the West Bank, all of this. Uh, where are the solidarity missions? Like, if, they're, if, if these people care so much, why aren't they traveling en masse to go and, you know, do public works projects to help the Gazans? Uh, why, you know, in the 1980s, good young, you know, leftist idiot, uh, you know, uh, useful idiot, commie morons were going to Nicaragua to pick coffee beans for two weeks in solidarity with the Sandinistas. Uh, where, where are these people? Or, or, or is it all just because now everybody can have an opinion based on five seconds of, uh, of exposure on Twitter, uh, you know, re, re, you know, uh, retweet somebody else's heartfelt tweet. So, to, so as to express solidarity uh, you don't have to put anything on the line. And now, particularly if you can put whatever you want to put on the line by jumping into somebody's pickup truck and waving a flag and yelling at Jews on the street, you know, boy, there's a lot of deep commitment on the part of American leftists toward the Palestinians. They're so committed. Oh, the level of commitment. They just, they're, they're, they're go there. They donate money. They, you know, they, they're working in summer camp programs. You know who does that? Jews. Left-wing Jews do that, attempting to find coexistence, you know, coexistence clownishness um, and, and to be kind of, you know, to, to play that kind of game. Uh, but not, not these people. They're not doing it. They're just, they're just it's, it is literally performative. Well, the, the hashtag activism has been a problem for a while, although I will say that that I think it now, particularly after last summer, has for many people morphed into, well, I'm a hashtag activist, I'm a keyboard warrior, hashtag activist, but when it's organized in my community, I'll go out to the street too and do that because then, then I'm really doing something. Often very little comes of that. I don't see them organizing around the legislation that's been proposed to stop funding to Israel, for example. It's really much more a social media, you know, let's, it's it's the three minutes hate or whatever. It's like, let's get out there and really scream at Jews. And then we'll have done something to, to stop Israel. But I do think that there's, um, there's been a couple articles about how TikTok and, and Twitter and other platforms have been used uh, by the pro-Palestinian movement to really shape younger people's idea of what the conflict is. And there, there hasn't been a good response on the other side to that, except to say anti-Semitism is bad. So in, in the war of ideas, there's, a, there's I think, a, a, there's a winning side in this propaganda war right now that, that should and needs to be countered. We've been saying, you know, the sort of the conspicuous lack of uh, both sidesism, as it were, you know, I talk of uh, not just solidarity, but you know, moral equivalencies from institutional liberal Western democracies has been pretty conspicuous over the course of this conflict. And yet we're also seeing this sort of spiraling street violence that is unprecedented, but lacks recent precedent. So are we seeing um, now this this response, this grassroots response, this street violence, street provocation, um, sort of as as a 
a response to that lack of institutional leadership, sort of like a in an, an anarchic um, expression of contempt, not necessarily with with Israel and Palestine per se, but with institutional democracies that are changing their tone in a way that these groups resent and are trying to force them to to change. I, I just feel like I feel like what we're seeing here is um, uh, uh, a very uh, ancient pleasure being indulged in. Like, I, I think that that's the important thing. What we're seeing here is why do people want to go out, scream at people, get into confrontations on the street, all that with flags flying and all that? Because it's fun, because it's a charge, because it's a kick, because it's, uh, you know, it nominally seems like you're doing so because you want to express your outrage and vent your vent your anger. Um, that is not what goes on at these sorts of at these sorts of events. Um, this is, uh, you know, this is the the posse forming, or this is the, hey, you know, let's all go and and either watch watch a lynching or participate in a lynching. That yeah. is not something that happens out of grim a grim sense of duty and a desire to you know express things in a moral frame. You know, it, it is I- a deep human sick weakness. Uh, that everybody has and everybody is susceptible to, and when you st- when you start peeling off the veneer of society, these are the weaknesses that start coming to the fore. I I wonder if there's also um, uh, we talk about silent majorities sometimes on the podcast. There, there's a weird sort of I wouldn't call them a silent majority, and we saw this with the race stuff, the anti racism stuff in particular over the last year. A lot of people, and I'm sure we've all come across people in regular conversations or in other debates where. Debate is stopped as soon as the phrase white supremacy is invoked or where, you know, you have to have anti-racist principles. There's a lot of people who imbibe the language and tone thinking they're doing something good and uh, noble by, you know, tackling racism, by reading all these books and whatnot. And that's, you know, it's annoying. It's sometimes pernicious when it when it spreads into education. But where it really shows its danger is when something happens that doesn't suit the lingo, the narrative, the story that the anti-racism stuff tells, and people who would otherwise go, that's bad, remain silent. And there's a way in which I think a lot of the platforms of social media have done the same thing with uh, Israel and, and Palestine, where there's a lot of people who used to say, you know, that's not right. We really shouldn't be driving down the street harassing Jews. But doing that is they, they've so publicly performed, as you said, John, they've so publicly performed their advocacy there's no way to change their mind and perform that, right? There, there's a strange effect that this has on people when they're when they're even just hashtag activists. And it's the silence and the unwillingness to call what they see wrong and morally reprehensible that, that concerns me. I mean, well, think of the language that they use. I'm sorry, briefly, but just the language that they use in, in the expression of this contemptuous, these contemptuous bigotries. It's imitatively academic. Um, it is the sort of language that is, you know, that festoons itself in these um, critical theories departments and identity studies departments on campuses. It it it, it presents itself as pseudo academic, so that makes it hard to argue against. You actually hear people say this that they feel like they can't argue against it because it sounds so authoritative. It sounds so scientific. It is scientific racism, just you know, glossed up as as but, progressive. But but you know, the, the, Christine's point is good because there's no. The, the the framework that is um, the the anti racism framework um, has no that structure has no space for what we're seeing now. It doesn't fit into it, right? So it can't be ad- addressed. And and you know the, and the language, by the way, that we're, that's being used by um, the pogromists is very different. That is f u Jews, f u Zionists. Well, that's right. the expression of the powerless. They're just they're just right. powerless, yeah. and they're and, yeah they're they're demonstrating their efficacy in whatever way is possible because it's been denied them. And and to the extent that we've seen any sort of um, left wing types renounce um, the the anti semitism that that's that's been ongoing for the past couple of weeks, um, it's only been statements to the to the to the effect of that distracts from the message. Not this is a horror. This is an evil. This is a terrible thing. But you're distracting from the message, and the message is that Israel is racist. Don't distract from that message. 
Right. Well, I just uh, tell a family story. I mean, it's a fancy an American intellectual, but family story. So, uh, in, uh, uh, the early eighties, um, Gore Vidal launched uh, in the pages of the nation uh, an almost explicitly anti-Semitic attack on my my parents, Norman Podhoritz and Midge Dector, but particularly particularly my father. And and he said at some point, you know, uh, that what they should be doing is what they are doing is they are defending their country, which is Israel. Um, this is sort of startlingly uh, blunt way of, you know, making the dual loyalty accusation. Gore Vidal had been a friend of my father's. He obviously was no longer a friend of my father's at this point. Um, and, and, and my father waited for a couple of weeks. This is before there was, you know, Twitter mobs and stuff like that, right? So he waited to see if anybody was going to call Gore Vidal out, in which the way you called Gore Vidal out then was writing op-eds, right? People publishing op-eds or pieces saying, you know what, I agree with Gore Vidal on many things, but uh, this was really beyond the pale. You know, we cannot have this kind of talk. And, you know, this is it's only, you know, 35 years since the Holocaust, however you want to slice it. Nothing happened. Uh, and so he, uh, you know, he ended up writing a series of articles, and particularly an article called Jacuz. I wrote a column about Gore Vidal, and then he wrote uh, various other things. Um, and when he asked some people among his friends and ex-friends why it was that no one had come to attack Vidal, the the general line was, well, you know, Norman can take care of himself. You know, Norman's got the good. He can take care of himself. We don't need to go out there and defend him. He can take, we don't like him anyway, and he can take care of himself. But that wasn't the point. The point wasn't that my, my father needed defending from Gore Vidal. Yeah, he could give it as well as he got it, and in fact, gave it way better than Gore Vidal ever gave it, uh, particularly in this regard. It was that this was an attack on Jews, not on him. This was anti-Semitism in the pages of a major American publication that was not being answered or addressed by the very people who write for, who need to self-police. Um, and that's, that's I, I bring this up only to say that, you know, I actually, I don't even remember why I'm bringing it up. Except, oh, no, I do know why I'm bringing it up. Because there is this point about why it is that you don't attack Ilhan Omar. You don't do the statement, uh, you know, uh, attacking Ilhan Omar or whatever. It's like, you know what? The Republicans can take care of that themselves. They're going to go after her. We don't have to go after her. But that's not the point. The point isn't who's going to score political points or who's going to look good when other people look bad. It's that Jew hatred leads to Jews getting killed by crazy people and monsters. And this is a three-millennium story, and it's a story now, and it's a story everywhere. And that's why you have to call it out and talk about it and threaten and do whatever you have to do, because Jews are going to get killed. Because Jews get killed when anti-Semites are activated. And Trump kind of activated them a little bit. We know that. We've talked about that. You know, he he bears some, you know, indirect responsibility for the surfacing of classic anti-Semitic tropes on the right beginning in 2015. And we've said that. And I'm not going to sit here and let Chuck Schumer get off the hook because don't worry, Ted Cruz is going to issue good statements because he did. And the entire Republican Party has. And Chuck Schumer is crawling under his desk crying because he's afraid of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I just want to add that Jew hatred also leads to societal sickness. Um, because as we've said, anti-Semitism is, is, among other things, a conspiracy theory. And if you allow and encourage that conspiracy theory to thrive, um, you have a societal breakdown a culture in which uh, there is um, vanishing personal responsibility, um, increased scapegoating, and um, stasis. 
And and it does the last few, particularly the last 24 to 48 hours of, of these attacks in, in places like New York City and L.A., prove another lie, which I've also seen a lot of the Schumers of the world and, and cultural figures in particular do, which is, well, it's not anti-Semitic to oppose Israeli's policies. You know, this, this whole like anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. Let's not pretend anymore that a lot of the people who are doing this are using that as cover for their for their hatred of Jews. That's what we yeah. see on the street. That's actually a more on. They're more at least they're honest about what they feel and their hatred. Yeah, yeah. except anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism and it always is. And it always is because it denies the idea. It is a denial of the idea that Jews have been uniquely threatened throughout history and remain uniquely threatened and are in need of a refuge on the planet Earth when things get too bad. And we've now seen what it, how important it is for uh, a Jewish state to be able to defend itself. Um, you know, again, like, uh, where are we? 70, 76 years after the Holocaust. Um, guys, uh, when running a business... As you've heard me say many times before, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap. An average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat from onboarding to terminations. They customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day all for just $99 a month. Month-to-month, no hidden fees. Cancel any time. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. So go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary. Spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Can I, I just want to go back to one point. Um, If there is a, a new Jewish Defense League as a result of this, you can bet that the New York Times will cover that and other and other places will cover that because the story then is Jews pounce and are yeah. well, sort of fascist. Right. Isn't it? Oh, of I mean, course. Whenever, whenever, whenever Jews organize to defend themselves, it's always dangerously right wing, even if they're all left wing. Yeah. For some by reason. the way, by the way, while we're in the midst of a series of celebrations, cultural celebrations, unending cultural celebrations of the legacy and wondrous uh, gift given to America by the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers, a street gang that defined itself as a self-defense organization for um, African Americans. And, you know, right now, uh, just now, Daniel Kaluuya playing Fred Hampton, a 21-year-old thug who was, you know, killed killed by cops in a, in a, in a, in a showdown, uh, has become this, you know, f- saintly figure of black, uh, you know, self-governance and self-expression. So that's all great. Yeah. But if Jews start getting together to make sure that they're not attacked on, on streets, that will be bad. Because they're white. Right. Because they're white, which we're not. I, every time this comes up, I got to say it again. You told my grandfather, the milkman, that he was as white as Rockefeller. Uh, he would have, like, he wouldn't have been able to assimilate the idea that he was the same race as not, not only the same race as Nelson Rockefeller, but the same race as you know, um, you know, Arturo uh, Venici, uh, the Italian guy who lived on the corner, or Seamus O'Callaghan, the guy who ran the Irish bar in the neighborhood. The idea that they were all the same somehow. Uh, that they were not ethnically and uh, even racially distinct, uh, that would have been a, a matter of absolute puzzlement to him. And he, you know, I mean, granted, he died 50 years ago, but he didn't die 5,000 years ago. But that is the miracle of the American experiment, right? The assimilative, the assimilative pressures, which are rapidly turning Hispanics into white people. 
even before our eyes. Yeah, we're watching Hispanics no. become become white or white adjacent. Right. Well, and, in, you know, part, yeah. in part because the balkanization uh, by race that's required by anti-racist theory requires that you have to pick, if you're not literally dark skinned, then you are white or white adjacent enough that you are the enemy, you're the cause of structural racism and white supremacy. Of course, it's going to make more Hispanics identify as white. Nah, it's all about Marxism. If you're, if you're a <laughs> yeah. Marxist, if you're far left Marxist, then you get to be whatever ethnicity into which you were born. If you're anything else, you're not that. Yeah, but I'll tell you one very important thing difference here, which is that, yes, America is a great melting pot, right? And so the Irish uh, uniquely uh, hostile, sources of unique hostility in American history are now fully American. Italians, the same. Chinese, you know, uh, who were brought over to, you know, work basically as, you know, chattel workers on the railroads. The Japanese, Japanese Americans were interred in, in camps and all of that. There is a difference with Jews. There is a historical and 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 uh, uh, cultural religious difference when it comes to Jews. Jews can assimilate, but only so far, and then they remain a distinct people. And they're a tiny people. You know, Jews make up two percent of the population of the United States and 002 percent of the population of the planet Earth, and we remain an incredibly distinct people. Because we do not believe what the vast majority of people believe. We do not hold to their religious traditions. And when things get rough, they start coming after us. That's just, people don't come after the, you know, the Italians because they're historically Italian. That is not how it works. Uh, this is something that, ha and it's now happening in America in 2021. And that's just, the fact of life of Jews. Jews assimilate and they can vanish. They can vanish into the American melting pot. But if they don't vanish, if we remain both American and distinctly Jewish, uh, uh, as I say, when things get tough or things get controversial or life gets very complicated, it all, that conspiracy theory I've talked about, all comes up again. And the only way to escape from it is to pretend not to be what we are. Um, uh, and that's, you know, that's not an acceptable compromise. So with that, we will uh, bid you adieu until Monday. Have a great weekend. For Abe, Christina, No, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.